glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. through 6. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of the prophecy of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. So I said I wanted to mention a few things just about the the chronology of the book. Uh, first of all, you'll hear when you hear about the tribulation period, or you hear about uh, Daniel's seventieth week. Some will refer to the tribulation period as Daniel's seventieth week. By the way, uh, you talk to different groups of people, and certainly you're going to have different people who come up with a different way of looking at the Bible. Um, I think there's reasons for that. I believe 9.9 times out of 10, the wrong conclusions about Scripture do not come as a result of an intellectual malfunction. They come as a result of a spiritual malfunction. We must remember the Bible is a spiritual book. I think one of the great errors of our time is the emphasis on... Okay, when we say a man needs to prepare for the ministry, and that, by the way, biblically, that is a must. Men must prepare for the ministry. Some people say, I don't plan, study, or prepare. I just let the Spirit lead. That's, that's a, a misnomer. That, that, is an, uh, that, that, that is a self-denying statement. When the Spirit leads, He doesn't lead us to be lazy. He doesn't lead us to just let loose and let her fly. Uh, the Spirit of the subject, prophet is subject to the prophet. And the Bible says that the last fruit of the Spirit is temperance. And so a study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. However, if we said someone's called to preach in our Christian culture, so-called in the United States, what is the primary way we think of someone preparing for the ministry? Classroom. And there's a place for that. Don't misunderstand me. There's a place for classroom preparation. But I believe this. You can go to seminary as a lost man and come out a lost man. George Mueller did. Studied to be a pastor. Went in lost. He didn't come out lost because somebody laid him the Lord while he was at school. But he was preparing to be a minister of the gospel and he didn't even know what the gospel was. And I understand that's extreme, but that's what happens when you get a culture that is submersed in religion but not in truth. My point is this. When we look at the Bible The primary preparation for a a minister of the Lord is spiritual. Primarily, first and foremost, it is spiritual. Does it involve the mind? Yes. But the mind is useless if the will is not submitted to God. The mind is a tool for the devil if the spirit and the heart are not submitted to God. And I say all that to say this. Many times, an intellectual only, an intellectual only approach to the Bible is going to develop a broad array 
of ideas about what we call eschatology. It's going to come up with all kinds of different things because of I'm going to pick that verse and grab that verse. And what we need to do is seek the mind of the Lord and understand this. One of the greatest things you'll ever understand in your study of the Bible is God's word never contradicts itself. If it seems to contradict itself, go back and hit it again. God's word does not contradict itself. The doctrines we hold are by holding first and foremost that this is God's word and it is not self-contradicting. I cannot tell you the number of times I've, I've got hung up in my Bible study thinking, I don't know what to do with this. It seems as though God's word is contradictory and make a decision of faith, not a decision with my head but my heart. I'm not going to accept that. I'm not going to accept that God contradicted himself. Rather, I'm going to ask him to show me what's, where's the problem. And I cannot tell you numerous times where I've missed something that God's word said. But once I made the decision, I'm not going to charge God with error. I'm going to accept that on me. I'm going to conclude if there seems to be error in the word of God, the error lies inside of my heart or my mind, not inside the pages of that book. And we need a renew, listen please, we, and I, this has, Nothing to do with I'm preaching tonight. We need, it has everything to do with it actually, a renewed confidence in our Bible. I saw a poll among Baptist preachers last week, and the question, it doesn't really matter at the moment what the question was, I could share it with you. The question was, is it sinful for a Christian to dress in goth? What would you say? So black fingernails, black lipstick, black clothing, so the punk rock dress. And would you realize it was almost a 50-50 split among Baptist preachers as to whether or not it's sinful for a Christian to dress gothic? That troubles me. I want to tell you why it troubles me. There's one verse that blows that, answers the question very quickly. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And I heard and read numerous explanations and saw very little Bible. Now that was a small sampling of a small group of preachers. So I'm not telling you that is a sampling of all preachers across the world, but it's a troubling thing to see that we're in a day where even preachers are preferring philosophy and human reasoning over the plain teaching of God's Word. And I'm not picking on that subject. I'm saying that was a sample of what I see many times today among how we address issues, including things to come, And what happens is many times we lean on our own understanding, which we're told not to do, rather than saying, whatever God said, that's it. That's right. And uh, many times our own reasoning skills become our undoing. Not that God doesn't give reasoning skills. God is reasonable. Don't misunderstand me. But we will only be able to understand his reasoning as we approach him by faith. By faith, by faith, by faith. And so having said that, let's get into some of the facts of the book. I think it's needful to say we're going to give you some interesting facts and very classroom-ish, if you would, for lack of a better term. You'll read the book of Revelation, or you hear the tribulation period is seven years long. Where does the book of Revelation say, and the tribulation shall be seven years long? It actually doesn't. It doesn't even say anything about years. It says days and months, okay? And so what you find is that God gives power unto his two witnesses. Uh, I believe it, let me get my notes here correct, okay? He gives power unto his two witnesses, uh, for what equates to a three-and-a-half-year period if it's 30-month uh, days, which it would be in, in, a, in a Hebrew calendar. So 1,260 days, Revelation says, he gives power unto his witnesses. I believe that is in Revelation 11:3, 3. 
And then in Revelation 11, 7, after 1260 days, which equals three and a half years in a 30-day calendar, the two witnesses are overcome of the beast. And then there's power given unto the beast for 42 months. <laughs> 42 months. It never says seven years. What's interesting, though, is you're going to have to study your Bible to realize 42 months is 3.5 years. 1260 days is 3.5 years. 3.5 plus 3.5 equals 7. When you go to the book of Daniel, guess what we have? We have Daniel's 70 weeks, and the Bible interprets itself and says each week is a what? A seven-year period, okay? So we understand why we refer to this as 70, 70 weeks. But you might hear the, revel- that the tribulation period is seven years long. Read through the book of Revelation over and over and say, I don't see it ever saying the re- that the tribulation is seven years long, because it doesn't. It says that the first 1260 days... The two witnesses have power. They're overcome. In the last 42 months, the beast has power, and then he is overcome of the lamb. And so I think those are interesting facts that help us as you read and study the book of Revelation. I encourage you, read it next to the book of Daniel. Let me just give you some some tips that have helped me in my personal Bible study. I have uh, on occasion sat down and read the book of Revelation, chapter 1 to chapter 22, in one sitting. I would encourage you strongly to do that. You'll get a better feel for the book. If you can sit down and read it from Revelation 1 to Revelation 22, um, read, read it by section. I'm going to give you some chronological section. Maybe read this number of chapters, then stop. What happens often, the chapter content is extremely helpful, but we must remember it's not inspired, and so it's very important many times to read right through that, and then you get a better feel. And uh, so... Those are just a few tips that I would encourage you. Read, again, the book of Revelation in conjunction or next to reading the book of Daniel. I think that's very helpful. Read it with the book of Zechariah. Uh, one of the things I try to do is read the portions of the Bible that I know go together or, or logically help explain one another. So I encourage you to do that. So you could do Leviticus and the book of Hebrews at the same time get a great blessing out of it. So when we look at the book of Revelation, the first three chapters are dealing with the age we live in right now. It's the current age, the church age or the dispensation of the grace of God. We know that the church age is of an unknown duration. The Lord did not say how long this time would be, this dispensation of the grace of God, um, but uh, he does tell us it will come to a conclusion. So the first three chapters of Revelation deal with the church age. Chapters 4 through 19 deal with the period of judgment, God's final judgment, uh, not final, but leading up to that final judgment. The final judgment comes at the end of the thousand years. But chapters 4 through 19 are dealing with the opening of seven seals, and then out of those seals you have trumpets and vials, and all of those are dealing with God's pouring out of his judgment on earth. That's chapters 4 through 19. So chapters 4 through 19 covers a period of seven years. You can see it covers that 1260 days and those 42 months. So chapters 4 through 19 is covering a period of seven years of tribulation on earth, referred to in Matthew 24 as the great tribulation. Can I continue to try to give us some helpful tips? How many of you read in the Bible that Christians go through tribulation? The Bible says so. But we need to be very careful in discerning the difference between the word tribulation and the term the great tribulation. The Lord Jesus referred in Matthew 24 to this period of time as the great tribulation, a period of time on earth. How many of us understand the tribulation that, for instance, the Thessalonians were going through Paul makes it very clear it was not the day of the Lord. It was not the great tribulation. He said that wasn't happening yet, and it makes it clear that day won't come until the Antichrist has been revealed. Okay, And the Antichrist won't be revealed until the church is out of the way. And so the tribulation that the Thessalonians were going through was caused by God or man? 
man. The tribulation on earth in Revelation 4 through 19 is caused by God or man? God. It is the wrath of God being poured out on earth. He is dealing with his enemies and at the same time fulfilling a promise to restore the nation of Israel and put their king David on the throne in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Revelation 4 through 19 is the period of judgment, seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. Revelation 20 deals with the kingdom age. Interesting. Chapters 4 through 19 covers seven years. Chapter 20 covers a thousand. (laughs) I think that's very interesting because if you go back before the flood, man lived basically a thousand years. The oldest man was 969. Uh, Adam, I think, was 963. Man is living almost a 1,000 years. And what we find is that, uh, I believe it's the book of Isaiah, refers to a child dying at 100 years of age. Can you, would you think of somebody as a child at 100? No, but if they're one-tenth of their final age, then they're just still a child. And so time looks different after the tribulation period until finally time will be no more. And if you look at how the, the Word of God works, I don't think it's any, any way stepping out of bounds to say what happened in, in Eden and the fall of man and the decline we saw from man living long and the world being lush and watered with a, with a vapor and men living almost a thousand years until after the flood, you get to, to Abraham and man's, he's 175 and he's an old man. Noah's 900, or, uh, Adam's 963. Abraham lives to 175 and is considered old. You find everything is declining, declining, declining. Christ comes on the scene. We're living this in this sin-cursed world. He deals, the wrath of God falls. And then during the, 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 the reign of Christ, Satan is bound for that thousand years. He's removed. Things on earth are going to look very different. So I'm getting a little ahead of myself. But it's interesting to me that Revelation 20 covers a thousand years. Chapters 4 through 19 covers 7. Chapter 20, it's the kingdom age and covers a thousand years. At the end of chapter 20, we find the final conflict between God and Satan the beast and so forth, all is thrown in the lake of fire. Death and hell are thrown in the lake of fire. And that brings us to chapters 21 and 22, and that's the eternal age. So in chapters three, 1 through 3, the church age. Chapters 4 through 19, uh, the period of judgment. Chapter 20, the kingdom age, that's a 1,000 years. And then chapters 21 and 22 is the eternal age, and it's endless. Uh, once we enter into, uh, we, when New Jerusalem comes down and heaven and earth are reconciled in finality, there's a new heaven and a new earth, and that's eternal. And so those who have been bought with the blood of the Lamb will take part in that eternal age. We call it heaven. You call it uh, eternal life with God. Uh, those who have not been bought with the blood will be in the lake of fire. And so then that's a breakdown of the book just generally. There's obviously many breakdowns inside of these four basic categories, and others may break it down a little differently, but that's a natural way that the book kind of is broken down. So I think that's just helpful. Now back to Revelation 1, verses 4 through 6. Let's get some things out of these verses tonight with the Lord's help uh, uh, this evening. So verse 4, John begins, he's, he's beginning to give his message. So he's given his opening statement we've looked at in, in verses 1 through 3. Then in verse 4, he is going to begin addressing the seven churches. He said, John, to the seven churches. We'll hear more about those churches before the chapter's done. Uh, we'll hear more about those churches before chapters 2 and 3 are done. I'll, I intend to take an entire message to deal with the fact that a church is a candlestick. There's much to be said about the fact that God likens a local church to a candlestick. And we'll see that it's a pillar and a ground. That's what a candlestick is. And so um, we love the continuity of Scripture. But John begins with saying, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness 
and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests and unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we look at four things here tonight in these uh, just these few verses, these three verses. First of all, John's audience. We need not miss this. I dealt with this to some degree already. But John does not address the book of Revelation to just the believer in general. He doesn't just address it to uh, anybody that claims to be a Christian. He does not address it to the church of Asia Minor. He doesn't address it to the church of Asia. He doesn't address it to the church at large. And we need to get a hold of this. The Lord Jesus Christ has made every local church a steward of his word. We are stewards of the word of God. It is our job to properly steward the word of God. First of all, personally to steward it by hearing it, keeping it, and obeying it. All right. So to read it, to hear it, to keep it as he said, but then collectively as stewards to do that. And then we're not only to keep it, we're to give it. We are supposed to be preaching the word. We're supposed to be holding forth, as Philippians 2 says, the word of life. People should hear the truth from the mouths of the members of Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church. Yes, should they hear it from the ministry of this church? Should they hear it from myself as the pastor of this church? Of course they should. Should they hear it over the radio? Should they hear it? Uh, but yet, yeah, but you know what? People ought to come in contact with us, and the one thing they ought to know after coming in contact with this church, whether it's an individual that's out in the in the public that's a member of this church, or they come and hear the preaching at this church, they should know the word of God. They should hear the word of God from us. And so they should hear it from the way we live our lives. Our lives should speak the word of God and our mouths should should be consistent. And so John's audience is these seven churches. It's interesting, uh, as we've said, he, he writes it. It's one message. It's written to the seven churches, meaning all churches are bound by the same doctrine. Denominationalism, and I'm not here preaching ecumenicism. You know better than that. But denominationalism is not the fruit of the working of the Spirit of God. Denominationalism has to do with schism over truth and receiving and promoting things that are not inconsistent, that are not consistent with the Word of God. And what has happened over time is uh, we we act like, well, this you know this church holds to this doctrine, and this holds this doctrine. Meaning there there is one authoritative message for every church. John says, this message is to all seven churches. He doesn't say, well, I have a message for the Baptist church over there in Ephesus or over in Laodicea. I have this message for the Lutheran church in Smyrna. No, no, no. One message, one authority for all seven churches. May I say this? Every church tonight is accountable. Every true church, every church that is an assembly of baptized believers is accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ and we are to be governed by the same doctrine. So it's John to the seven churches. So it deals with the authority over those churches is the word of God. But it also addresses at the same time the autonomy of these churches. How many of us understand as we read the book of Revelation, each church had a different need. Each church had a different strength, had a different weakness. The Laodiceans had no strength, only weaknesses. But each church had a different character, had a different disposition about them, had different struggles, different battles. Uh, God made promises to them, so he dealt with them on an individual autonomous basis, but the, the authority was the same. The word of Jesus Christ in writing through the hand of one of his apostles. And so if we have churches that are not submitting to the written word of God, then we have churches that are out of line, including this one or any other. 
Our authority is the written word of God. John to the seven churches. So it deals with the authority of these churches when he says to the seven churches. One message for all seven churches in the sense of one source of that message. All from Jesus Christ through the hand of John. But then the, the number seven there denotes these were seven separate churches. Which is, again, we find the doctrine of the local church. And I'm kind of teaching Sunday school while I'm preaching on Thursday night. But what we have is each and every local church is answerable directly to Jesus Christ. Each functions as an autonomous body. Do we have relationship with other Christians? Yes. But may I say this? All Christians are not part of the same church. We are members of the same body spiritually. If you want to speak of it from God's position, we're all already seated in the heavenlies. Right? So if you say, well, is there a universal church? Is there such a thing? It's in heaven, not on earth. (laughs) On earth, the church functions locally. It it functions autonomously. So let me just say this. The idea of independent autonomous churches, it's a Bible concept. It's not a denominational concept. That's a Bible concept. One of the worst things we can do is start creating um, organizations that overstep and start telling all these churches what to do outside of the Bible. That's why we're against being part of an association or a convention. It has never failed that when you form associations and conventions, they begin to tell the churches, this is what you conform to, and inevitably the churches have to choose. Are we going to conform to the Word of God? We're going to conform to the headquarters and the denominational head. And so then, thus, you find one of the reasons we are an independent Baptist church. And uh, there's Bible reason for that. It's not family tradition. There's Bible reason for why a church should be independent. I find that the church movements, where there's been churches where the identification between those churches is doctrinal, not not ecclesiastical, meaning they're not ruled by a governing body. Some of the greatest men of God, some of the greatest movements among us, men have come out of churches. And I'm not saying God hasn't raised people out of out of uh, denominational type churches, but have come out of churches where they, they were independent. They understood the answer to Jesus Christ and did so. So seven churches. He's writing to the seven churches of Asia. So. Again, he writes to the church, may I say this, if a believer wants God to use them, uh, God's going to work through the local New Testament church. Many believers are cutting their own feet off when it comes to spiritual progress and service by not attaching themselves to a local New Testament church. At the end of the age, God was still working through churches. There are people today who think God's done with the church as an institution. All they need to do is read the book of Revelation. Even the Laodicean church, Jesus was still knocking on the door desiring to come in. (laughs) Amen? He had not yet abandoned that that particular local church. And so he's writing to seven autonomous units, but all under the authority of his word, seven churches, not individuals. The Bible says that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth in 2 Timothy 3.15. Paul told Timothy, And if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. I'll say unequivocally, If a person is saved and not faithfully attached to a New Testament church, they are not walking in the will of God. That's biblical. That's biblical. It's how we forsake the assembling. Forsaking the assembling doesn't simply mean I never attend church. Forsaking. How many of us understand there are people who have forsaken a marriage far before they ever divorced it? Forsaking takes place right here. There are many today who have forsaken the assembling. They've forsaken the local church in their heart. It's very unimportant to them, very uh, very low on the priority scale. That's a form of forsaking to do that. The Lord Jesus took time when he said to John, I have a, a very important message to deliver. He delivered it to churches. 
Seven of them, okay? The number seven, I think, also deals with this. We know we don't make a lot of numerology because some make too much. We'd be careful not to do that. But you will notice the number of seven throughout the book of Revelation many times, many times. This is the first of, I think, 20-some-odd mentions of sevens. Okay, seven I am's in the book of Revelation. Very interesting. There are seven trumpets in the book of Revelation. There are seven seals in the book of Revelation. If I'm not mistaken, seven vials. There's all these sevens. And here's the first, seven churches. Seven is the number of completion. Meaning, I believe these seven churches, uh, and we're not going to go further than what the Bible says, but you have to see, he mentioned seven. They represent everything you'll ever find in a church. Meaning, because it's seven of them, there's nothing that's dealt with in these seven churches that's not going to exhaust what you'll have to deal with in a church setting somewhere sometime. Meaning what is said to the seven churches will apply to any church and every church. Everything's covered. You're going to cover all the problems, persecution, uh, apathy, uh, whatever it may be, uh, the leaving of our first love. These seven churches are, are combined to represent uh, all churches throughout all time everywhere. They were seven literal churches in Asia that the Lord was dealing with. But you know what? All seven of them were existing at the same time. They all seven had these problems at this time. And if you looked at churches today, you'll find the same problems represented in those seven churches, which tells us it wasn't just for them. It's for churches today. The message is up to date. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. So it's a complete message to the churches. And so John's audience are these seven churches of Asia. Their, their, their location uh, these are not mystical. They are local and practical churches that existed in his time. It is said by many historians, John was the pastor of the church at Ephesus for a period of time, uh, so much so that there's strong evidence for that. And so John's audience. Number two, we see John's appeal. So he starts saying, John to the seven churches uh, which are in Asia. Then he says, grace be uh, unto you and peace. It's very interesting. Much like the book of Jude, much like the book of Second Peter, uh, when you read the content, you would say, peace? But you know what? Truth is always the source of peace for the believer. John will say twice in the book of Revelation, even so, even so, come. That's what he says in the end of the book. In spite of the, of the darkness of this message, in spite of the judgment of God, the wrath of God that's coming, in spite of the world coming to an end, even so, because this has to happen for him to show up. When our hearts are set on Christ, it is his word that ministers grace and peace. And John's appeal for these churches is grace and peace. As I said before, just much like the book of Jude, Jude is encouraged, wanting to help the believers, and yet he deals with exposing apostasy. I mean, much of Jude's message is negative. Would we agree on that? And yet, here's, what I, here's the point I want to make. Many times today, people are upset with the local church or upset with the preacher of the Word of God because they'll say, but he's, his message is often negative. I want an edifying message. I read some content this afternoon, someone railing once again on the kind of church they grew up in, casting stones at people that they're constantly telling not to cast stones. <laughs> right? And they're bitter. You can hear it in their tone. And what they're saying is, oh, I found so much more grace and edification in my new group. And what they mean, and if I were hearing them correctly, is they said, I'm in a group now that doesn't constantly bash people who don't use the right Bible, bash people that listen to the wrong music. Basically, I'm in a group now that accepts you and affirms you as you are, and I feel good about that. Read the book of Revelation. It is mostly negative. 
And by the way, if there is sympathy with this idea of, but you know, we, we, need, we need to be edified. I'm going to tell you something. Negative content is edifying as much as positive content is, as long as it's from the mouth of God. And if we got a bad attitude about that, I'm going to tell you something. This is not the problem. The Holy Spirit of God is not the problem. Many times the preacher is not the problem. The heart is the problem. Listen to a young man last night, one of the inmates. And I'm sometimes reluctant to know how many of these stories to share, but I asked what was the most deceitful thing on earth. You know what his answer was? Some of my kids know. Police officers. Oh, yeah. They're all bad. They're all out to get you. They're all crooked. And according to him, they all need to die and go to hell. And we'll tell you something. We go, my goodness, what's eating on that guy? Bitterness. And I contended with him. I said, you're wrong. I said, you're right. Some are crooked. Some are deceitful. But your view is, is misguided by bitterness in your heart. There's a lot of people who call themselves Christians have the same thing. They're misguided so that any content that does not affirm, encourage, and make them feel better about themselves is somehow not gracious. I think we need to get our definitions for God's words from God's book. Amen. I know I'm doing a little preaching here, but the fact is we often think gracious is, a, is merely a tone of voice. Well, graciousness is expressed through tone, no doubt. But John's going to say, how many, how many of you think it was gracious of Jesus to say to one of his churches, you're poor and wretched and miserable and naked and blind, and the worst part of it is, is you think you're all the opposite. Was that gracious? It was. Because it's what they needed to hear. I, I'm only saying this to say this. I hope, as I just said, we can define terms when they're God's, grace is God's term. Man knows nothing of grace outside of God. We don't know what it means to be gracious. We don't know to give favor without someone earning it. We, no, no. It's a give and take with us. We don't know grace but by God. And so when John opens it says, grace and peace unto you, in 21st century America we'd say, oh, goody. This is going to be a fluffy message. It's going to make me feel warm and fuzzy inside. Not really, but it's helpful. How many of you are glad to know what Revelation reveals? You know what the content of Revelation does? It helps us put our world in perspective. It helps us know how to live today because we know what's coming down the pike. And so the grace of God has provided even content that sometimes is difficult to accept. Nonetheless, John's appeal is his desire is the provision of God on behalf of these seven churches, God's grace, and God's grace gives God's peace. He wanted God's provision for them, and he wanted God's peace in their lives. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 speaks of God's peace. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, my brethren, verse 8 says, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are, are, are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. That's the content of God's word we need to think on. Peace does not come by living in a perfect world. Peace comes by thanking God, trusting God, and thinking on his word. And so then John desires for the people he's writing to grace and peace. That's the heart behind the message. It's the motive, if you would be, behind the message. And the, we get into John's acknowledgement. speaks 
We've spoken of his audience, verse 4, the first part, the seven churches in Asia. His appeal, God's grace and God's peace for them. Then he tells us where grace and peace comes from. He said, I am the penman, but the source of grace and peace is not me. Uh, John says, I'm writing to you, but notice what he says. He wants them to be clear where grace and peace comes from. Grace be unto you and peace from him, which is and which was and which is to come. He is speaking of the eternal God. Then he says, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. How many of you knew that the triune God is actually a little more than that? There are seven holies. You notice that's capitalized in your Bible. Now, that's a head scratcher. And it's mentioned again. The seven spirits are mentioned in Revelation 3.1, Revelation 4.5, Revelation 5.6. And they are mentioned, little, little letter, lowercase, Zechariah 3.9 and 4.10. What is he talking about, the seven spirits? I can't tell. It's one of those that's like, I can't exactly say for sure. I know this. God is not, there are not seven Holy Spirits. And he's obviously referring to the Holy Spirit here. How I many understand this? The Holy Spirit of God has, when he says he which is, is and was and is to come, is he speaking of the ter- eternality of God, the Father? seems to me the seven spirits is the Spirit of God is the same. Number one, you could apply it to every, every church. There are seven churches and the Holy Spirit ministers to each one of those. He is the same in every age of time. Amen? Uh, the Bible speaks of, of the, the seven spirits being the eyes of the Lord. Uh, I don't understand all that. I'll be honest with you. I don't understand all that. I do believe this. It's a reference not to seven distinct Holy Spirits of God, like he refers to seven distinct churches, which are in Asia, and then he names them. It would seem to me what he's dealing with here in the context of this and what he says in the rest of the book, when you look at Zechariah, that the seven spirits are dealing once again with the Holy Spirit, the second person or the third person of the Trinity, as being present in every age, present in every place. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Uh, you, could, you could apply it in so many different ways, but uh, nonetheless, don't, we need not be confused by the reference to seven spirits. There are not, this is not just mentioning seven angels. Grace and peace don't come from angels. Grace and peace comes from God. Amen? And so how many of you would say, uh, how many of us know we use figurative speech? How many of you would say, well, uh, I knew you 20 years ago, and you're a different Nevin than you were then. You with me? You're a different Nevin than you were then. Or, um, you know, you're, 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 uh, I would ask you this. Am I a dad? Am I a pastor? Am I a son, a grandson, or a brother? All the above. Was God the Holy Spirit, the spirit to the church at Ephesus, or the spirit to the church at Thyatira? And the answer is yes. He's the same in every age, in every place, at every time. The emphasis in in this verse on the Godhead, whether it's God the Father, there are not three gods, but He is the God that is and the God that was and the God that is to come. It's explaining that He is eternal. And I believe the same is the same when He says the seven spirits, that is the Spirit of God, this is the same Spirit of God that was the Spirit that uh, brewed over the waters, if you would, or moved upon the face of the waters at creation. He's the same Holy Spirit by which Mary conceived. He's the same Holy Spirit that delivered uh, the, the Word of God to, uh, to Moses as to Paul. And uh, so it's dealing with the fact uh, that he's the same and that he is in every age and every time and every place and he's always the same. And so, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, that's the best I can do, and explain that. And from, verse 5, Jesus Christ. What you see here is a reference to the Trinity. God the Father, him which is and was and is to come. God the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits which are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, I love the next statement, who is the faithful witness. You have men who rationalize and reason that creation was a uh, something done over a long period of time. 
But when you read what Jesus says about creation, he speaks of it just like it speaks in Genesis. In the beginning it was not so, but he that made them made them male and female, and so on and so forth. He speaks about marriage. You know what? Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. This is going to be very important when the Laodiceans have a testimony about themselves that is in conflict with the testimony of Jesus Christ. The testimony of the Laodiceans is we are rich, increased with goods, and in need of nothing. The testimony of Jesus Christ is you're wretched, poor, miserable, naked, and blind. You need eye salve. You need clothed. You need riches that will endure. Whose testimony was right? There was a conflict between what the Laodiceans testified about themselves and what Jesus testified about them. He is the faithful witness. There are, there are modernists who deny literal hell. There are modernists who, who dive deep, deep into the original languages in order to undo the word of God. I'm all, you want to study the original language? That's wonderful. But when we do that to undo the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ is going to stand. He is the faithful witness. And so then he gives much time to describe Jesus Christ and help us understand the truth of Colossians chapter 2 verse 9. And that is Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and to his father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And so John's acknowledgement is number one of the source of our provision that The source of grace and peace is from God through uh, his servants, but it's from God. The specifics is that it comes from God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and specifically and especially by God the Son from Jesus Christ. Described him first as the faithful witness. Witness has to do with his preaching and teaching ministry. has to do with his word, what he has spoken. The faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, that has to do with his sacrifice in our place. John is referencing the word of Christ Uh, He's referencing the work of Christ on the cross and referencing his work in raising up from the dead. He is reminding them of the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and was raised from the dead according to the scripture. And then he says, the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. He's reminding us that through his resurrection he has been highly exalted and given a name which is above every name. It's what Philippians 2 tells us, chapter uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're reminded that Jesus Christ uh, has, has come. God in the flesh came to us. His witness is faithful. His work is finished. He's the first begotten of the dead and he's the prince of the kings of the earth. He is to be worshipped because he is truly God. And then he goes on to say, so he's dealing with the source of our provision, and then those specifics, him which was and is and is to come, the seven spirits from Jesus Christ. Then verses 5 and 6, we find John getting into what I'll refer to as adulation. He is worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says that this grace and peace is from him that was, was and is and is to come, uh, from the seven spirits and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and first begotten from the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. Then he changes his language. He says, unto him. So he's talking about what's come from him. Grace and peace comes from him, but unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. John is going to speak of his, his adulation or his worship of the Lord Jesus Christ because of his sacrificial work, because of his sanctifying work, and therefore his supreme worthiness. Notice what he says. This is what Christ has done. He loved us unto him that loved us. So we're going back to what he did in dying on the cross in in our place. 
and washed us from our sins in his own blood. In the meeting last night with the men in the jail, I, I asked him, if our heart is the problem, how in the world can it be washed? And one of the men's answer was baptism. I said, no, not water baptism. Water can't wash away sins. It takes the blood of Jesus Christ to wash away sins. That blood, the power of it, is imparted to our account when we put faith in his blood. His blood was shed to pay for our sins. My faith in his blood gets me washed from my sins through his blood. Praise the Lord for that. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians tells us chapter 1, I believe that's verse 7. So the forgiveness of sins through faith in his blood. John is beside himself with who Jesus Christ is because he's the faithful witness, first begotten of the dead, prince of the kings of the earth uh, through the work he's done. But then that's... Then he turns to what he's done for us. He's loved us. We know his love was manifest through his death on the cross and shed blood. He's not only loved us. By the way, that love is for the world. But the washing is for the believer and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. You know, one deals with salvation. The other deals with service. The, the verse 5 deals with our salvation, with the forgiveness of our sins. But you realize through the washing... He has sanctified us and set us apart and made us useful or, or usable in his service. Kings and priests has to do with ruling and serving. Kings and priests, meaning Paul deals with the fact that in the eternal age we will be judges. We understand believers are going to judge angels. Do we know that? First Corinthians chapter 6 teaches us that believers are going to rule and reign with Christ. We'll be judges, meaning will be judgment given unto us. And so he's, can you think of this? God took beggars, sinners, Washed him in his blood and made us kings and priests. He is, he is showing the, he's, he's referring to what is written in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so this is speaking of his saving work on our behalf, but it's also speaking of his sanctifying work. We know in 1 Corinthians 6, we looked at a couple Sunday mornings ago on, uh, on, a, on Sunday morning, uh, verse 11, and such were some of you. Talking about the horrible things we were, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified. Sanctified is seen in a twofold manner. We are sanctified positionally. The moment I place my faith in Christ, He redeems me, He forgives me, sets me apart, deals with my sins so that I am now a child of God. My position is in Christ. I am forever sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. And then sanctification, my position results in a process in my life on earth. God is constantly working to cleanse my life, to make me more usable. The Bible talks about that in 2 Timothy. And every man that nameth the name of Christ, let him depart from iniquity. The idea would be so that you can be usable in God's service. And, the, and so John is, is elated with the fact that Christ has died for us, but that in living he has made us kings and priests unto God. And he says, to him be glory and dominion forever. And ever, amen. This is a theme throughout the book of Revelation. Worthy is the Lamb. He's the one who died for us. He's the one who redeemed us. He's the one who washed us. He's the one who makes us fit for service. He's the one that gets the glory. You know what? You know what Revelation's intended to do? Get us ready for heaven. And any gospel, let me just repeat this. We're dealing with this on Sunday night. Any gospel that results in giving man credit for redeeming himself, for washing himself, for fitting himself for service in the sense of our merit, our righteousness is not the same as the gospel of the word of God. John is saying we are able to serve, we are able to reign not because of who we are, but because of who he is. 
It is He trusted, submitted to, that makes us fit, not only for salvation. It is He who fits us for salvation. It is He who equips us for service, and therefore He is worthy of dominion, uh, glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's the only one who will never disqualify Himself from His supreme position of authority. How many have seen people do well until they get authority, and then the authority ruins them? We've seen it many times. Abraham Lincoln said, you really don't know what a man is until you give him power. You give him in power, reveal his true character. And boy, how true that is. And so Jesus Christ, having all power, is worthy to retain it for how long? Forever and ever. He has earned the right to have all glory and all dominion for all time because he's perfect. He's righteous and worthy. He came, loved us, died for us, raised from the dead, has taken filthy, wretched sinners and made them clean, fit to rule and reign with him. A lot is going to be said, but we must start with the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where everything starts and it's where everything ends, with the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've seen John's audience, John's appeal, John's acknowledgement, and John's, John's adulation. He's going to... He's going to say a lot of things that come from the Lord Jesus Christ and what the Lord's going to do and the judgment that's coming and all those things. But he begins by reminding us of who Christ is and who we are in him as we receive those things from him. It's important for us to remember, we saw this just recently in Galatians, as the Lord ministers corrective words to us. We're going to see some corrective words that are given to these churches and it will be corrective to us as well. But he's worthy of glory and dominion. He is worthy to rule. He's worthy to rule in our lives. Our heartbeat should be, Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. That should be our desire. And so, to Him, our title tonight, to Him be glory and dominion. And not only now, but forever and ever. So there we have the first six verses. Very soon, uh, well, it'll take us a bit to get through chapter 1. But when we get to chapters 2 and 3, we'll go through each of the seven churches and look at their needs, and look at what the Lord addressed, and how He dealt with them. And not only hopefully learn some things about the seven churches, but learn some, thing about, some things about our Lord. I think one of the things we need to learn to do through the Bible is learn to hear His voice. Many times He's speaking, and we confuse it for another voice. We need to learn how the Lord speaks, and what He's concerned about. And I think through going through the seven churches, it'll help us to do that. So. Mm-hmm.